Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nicklich and my guest today is Dr. Cassandra Chapman, who holds a PhD in the psychology of charitable giving at the University of Queensland and is now an Associate Professor of Marketing and ARC DECRA Fellow, specialised in donor psychology and fundraising. Having come to academia with a background in nonprofit marketing, Cassandra's research focuses on the psychology of charitable giving, trust in nonprofits, and public responses to charity scandals. She uses diverse methods to understand when and why donors are more or less willing to give to particular causes and the implications such preferences have on how charities communicate. What makes this conversation with Cassandra so fascinating is that she's worked in nonprofits, volunteered, and also had paid uh, employment in those, looking at the hands on approach all the way to the fundraising uh, concepts of how to engage potential donors, how recipients receive these these funds, and also how the organization views engaging with both parties. Interesting to hear. Cassandra's viewpoint as she has lived and breathed this for some time and is purely and and genuinely passionate about this space and really is someone that has not only an academic understanding but from a ground ground roots perspective too. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Cassandra, big thank you for coming on to the show today. Thanks, I'm stoked to be here. Look, really excited to talk about charitable giving uh, with you. I actually spoke with your colleague uh, just yesterday, in actual fact, um, Michael Notel, uh, with regards to you know a similar a similar topic, and it's something that's I think really really important. You know, coming around this Christmas time and in, into the new year, and you know, how we look at. Uh, giving to others, you know, our our, our sense of compassion, um, and I know that you know we'll we'll go into many other topics as well. But uh, eager eager to chat some more. Yeah, well, as I um, probably have mentioned, always eager to talk about nerdy charity stuff with anyone that's keen to learn. So, <laughs> thanks for the opportunity. How did you get into this space? How did I get into the space? Um, well, I'm a Kiwi. And so what Kiwis like to do in their 20s is head off into the world and explore it. So I, you know, had started my career in New Zealand for a couple of years in corporate marketing, and then I donned a backpack and went off into South America and, and sort of backpacked around and suddenly was confronted by the reality of the world, I guess. You know, you live a privileged upbringing in, in New Zealand and you haven't necessarily seen real hardship. So pretty quickly I became uncomfortable with, the fact that here I was 24 years old and I could afford to take a year off work and just travel around and enjoy my life. And there were people that were struggling. And so I decided to use some of that time to volunteer. Um, 
And so I started a journey of volunteering, which turned into many years of volunteering, and that turned into working in the nonprofit sector in various roles, um, both in field roles, so in Latin America and Asia, um, where I was often doing communications um, and sponsorship and stuff like that, but from the local angle, working with children, and then eventually coming back to New Zealand and um, working in nonprofits there as a fundraiser. And when I was working as a fundraiser, I started, you know, there's a lot of practices that people that um, do fundraising, they're really good at knowing what works, what gets people to give money. And so I was learning about what works and I was doing these kinds of campaigns, but I was also, you know, at barbecues and talking to people and they were coming up to me and saying, oh, you work at a charity. Oh, what about, why do they always come up to us in the street and harass us? Why do they, are those children really real? You know, all these doubts and concerns about charities. And I was thinking, well, People don't feel great about the way we're fundraising, and yet we know that it's effective. And so I started to look at psychology literature because I was a psych geek, and I just couldn't find a lot of evidence for not just what works, but how it works and why it works. And I thought it's extremely important for nonprofits to understand the psychology underpinning the behaviors so that we can make sure that we're promoting giving in ways that feel nourishing and sustainable and make people feel great about giving. So I really just did a PhD to get some of the answers for people like me who were trying to raise money for important causes. And then the rest is history, I guess. I, I turned out I was kind of good at that and there was a, a need for that. And so the work continues. What um, what countries did you visit in Latin America? Well, a lot. Um, I did spend several years there. So I spent a lot of time traveling around most countries, but I also worked uh, for a while in the Galapagos Islands um, I worked in El Salvador and Dominican Republic and Haiti. Yeah, wow, wow. Yeah. And what sort of what what sort of things struck you as as a you know twenty four year old to start with, and obviously you know in the years following, what were the things that kind of touched touched you that um, you know uh, obviously a, a, a drastic you know, difference between what you were living in, in in New Zealand or like Australia and, and, and going overseas and seeing you know, a different culture, a different world? Mm. Um, I think just the, the it's all about degrees. So there's hardship and deprivation in Australia and New Zealand. Absolutely, there's many people doing it tough, very tough. But there aren't many people and families in Australia that literally might not be able to feed themselves today and that are battling to really survive on that like day-to-day level and that's because we're really lucky to live in countries that have great welfare systems which means that everyone gets just enough to be able to survive and when you're in many countries um, in the global south that safety net isn't there and so what you see is you see people really battling and they're working so hard just to try and survive another day for their family and and that is something I didn't expect and something that I was very moved by, right? I guess because, I mean, I don't actually come from a very privileged background myself. And the fact that even I <laughs> could be out there backpacking because I'd worked for a couple of years, I'd saved up enough money to go around and travel frugally. But sure enough, you know, I could just have that luxurious life. And it just, you know, it just shook me a little. And I just, I just thought, well, I could do something. And I think many of us are in that position, I think we're very lucky uh, to live in a situation where we do come with that baseline level of opportunity 
And I think, you know, now I think one really, really simple way people can engage is is just to donate a little of that of that that they have, um, whether that's time or money or whatever it is, that just to contribute a little bit to making it a little bit better for others. I, I asked the question because it must be quite a challenge at a, you know, barbecue or a social event when you heard things like, you know, what what happens with that money or we don't kind yeah. of feel like, you know, yeah. this is being used properly or, or how it's being done is is maybe a bit um, you know, inappropriate or whatever it might be. It must be hard with that contradiction of saying, but I've seen with my own eyes, I've, I've volunteered, I've, I've worked with these human beings who are going yeah. through immense hardship, you know, things that we can't even imagine. Yeah. Um, that must be, you know, hard to hear. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's hard, but it's also totally understandable, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you, you know, I am extremely privileged. I've spent time in many countries and in many communities, and I've done work that many people will never have the opportunity to experience. And that's great. I'm glad that they never see or know those things about the world in a way. Like, it's hard. Mm. But, you know, I can't judge other people that have never seen because they're just like that version of me before right (laughs) where I just thought oh yeah like I've had a bit of a tough little life or something you know and really no I've had the most ultimately privileged Mm. life and um so no I think you can't judge but I definitely used to be very you know before I got into the psychology of giving research you know I was like I just didn't understand why people didn't give like I was like how could you not um because it doesn't have to be much and I you know by working in the field I had seen the transformation that these kind of support can make. Um, so, yeah, I just thought, oh, there's so little for us and so much for somebody else. So, yeah, it's definitely hard to understand, but it, it's also, you know, comprehensible, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember traveling myself, you know, similar similar story, not for a year though, um, but I, imagine, I, I remember the first time, I uh, went overseas and it was to Southeast Asia and I was, I was actually in tears. Um, you know, mm. I was probably mid mid twenties as, uh, you know, uh, or thereabouts. And I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was, it yeah. was, you know, uh, completely overwhelming, um, you know, to go and see children begging, you know, who obviously haven't had a you know, shower or bath for an extended period of time and, and, you know things that are that for us in a Western world are so easily um, overcome was mm. was it was so distressing um, mm. and, and yet important. You know, you, you come back and and you appreciate so much more, and it's, it's something that stays with you, or certainly has with me yeah. for a lifetime to see another person's perspective. And so, you know, it's it, it, it's such important uh, work, and then obviously. For you, that volunteering and then fundraising and, and then a PhD to try and figure yeah. it all out. Yeah, weird, weird uh, trajectory. I mean, for me, the trajectory of how I've moved through my career has also been a process of understanding such situ- complex situations more and becoming more abstract in my role in the solution because, you know, there are also problems with, for example, people that look like me going into communities of people of color, for example, and then being a role model in those communities, it's problematic. You know, we call it the white savior complex where you're essentially training 
young kids to think white people are good and my local people aren't helping me and you're taking jobs from local people and all of these things. And so I did that. Of course, I didn't know better. I was trying to help. And then as I learned more about the situation, I thought, okay, (laughs) you know, how great if I can help in a way that might not be as personally fulfilling. Like obviously when you work with communities and children, it's so wonderful on a day-to-day basis to see the impact that your work can make. But what if I enabled other people, local people, to do that incredible work and to be their local heroes and to be role models for children that look like them and to have jobs? And so then I kind of got into the fundraising role and then that was a degree of abstraction, but also an increase in impact because then instead of just being one person that can help, I can help to fund all of this work for like mm. help millions of people. And then now as an academic, it's even more abstract, isn't it? But my work, I can help all of those fundraisers that are helping all of those communities. And so I, for me, it's a personally fulfilling way to do it, but it's also a journey, all of these things, like there's no right way to do any of this. And so I I meet a lot of people that get concerned about, for example, their giving choices and they're like, or is it, am I doing it the effective way? Am I doing the right thing? And, you know, I just think be gentle with yourself, you know, just Mm. you're in a process of learning and and you start for example seeing shocking things and thinking oh everyone's suffering and it's so hard over there and then when you spend time in these communities you go oh actually there's so much joy and resilience and you know there's so much capability and then you get to see that just with a little bit of support people incredible people around the world are enabled to transform their own lives and that becomes very exciting to you and then you think yeah I want to step back and realize that these people are extremely capable and they've just not had the resources you give them the resources and then you just watch incredible things happen I've watched children orphans that had had the most horrific start in life now are in their 20s and and 30s and doing incredible things with their life because of the help that they were provided so it's really great it's interesting how the, the the luxury of the the modern world for for us means that we can think a lot. You know, we do think a lot around you know unintended consequences, which is a good thing. We can kind of ask you know complex questions about mm. you know if giving money in this way versus that way. You know, what might occur because of that that might be unintended. Yeah. Um. You know, all the way through to you know what is an intended consequence that we're looking for and how. Might, might might we, you know, reverse engineer that that outcome? Uh, but interestingly, also, uh, it's, it's it's interesting how much time we can sometimes be spending on that, which you know, on an individual basis, can be paralyzing in and of itself. We we try and do yeah. the best, and by doing the best, we never do anything. And and yeah. I know there's a gentleman um, uh, that is. Uh, fairly fairly pro- prolific at the moment with his sort of determination and his sort of physical feats his name is David Goggins and he talks about you know not going out and, and worrying about what's the right way to exercise it's like just stand up and start walking you know and yeah. deliberate while totally. you're walking you know do, yeah. do something he doesn't care yeah. you know lift something in the air while you're deliberating the the whole you know, idea of, of trying to do the right thing ends up actually getting in the way. And I think for, yeah, for a lot of us, yeah. you know, we, 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 we almost do that for everything now, you know, the, rev, you know, I'm sure that Google reviews, uh, sorry, um, uh, yeah, Google reviews or, or YouTube reviews are probably, you know, looked up countless times in the, in the, in the Western world, trying to find the right vacuum cleaner, you know, the, the best something or other in 2022, 
versus just doing something, you know. And and as exactly. you say, it's a process. You learn from that, and you kind of recognize, hey, this isn't unintended. Maybe there's a more effective way. Mm, absolutely. And if you're not learning, then like I think it's you got to be gentle with yourself, right? Like if you think about yourself when you were twenty. <laughs> You know, then you think, yeah, oh, how I thought about things, things I did. Well, I wouldn't do that like that now. And that's just a process of evolution. And I think it's the same with your giving, you know, like just do it. Like if something moves you and you think that's important, make a donation. And then what's going to happen is you're going to start a conversation with that charity. You know, they're going to welcome you into the fold. They're going to keep you informed about the work and how it is transforming something in the world. And pay attention to that. And if you like those transformations, then keep giving to them. And if you think, well, I'm not sure that that's, you know, then don't give to them again, find something else, but just learn, you know, and and because a lot of um, fundraising involves highlighting the need, and that's a really critical psychological factor. We don't tend to help people if we don't think they need help. So fundraisers will always be showing you the need, but beyond behind the need, there's the transformation and there's the the thriving that the support enables. And if you continue to receive communications from that charity, they will take you on that journey. And then you can be part of seeing those transformations and you'll learn yourself about the complexity of these situations. And it's not as simple as it looks. And it's not just these needy people begging for support. No, they're like incredibly talented, capable people that just haven't had the opportunities we've had give them the opportunities, watch them thrive. And you'll learn that yourself through your giving journey. And that's what's so fun as a, as a donor, I think. I, I can certainly say uh, I, I, I previously had two, uh, you know, air quotes, sponsored children um, yeah. that I was giving to for in, in through World Vision. Um, and one of the most lovely things was receiving you know, a card with a photo of the child and, yeah, and, and watching them actually grow, you know, that, that, that there's these little kids that are growing up and then all of a sudden they've got, you know, a little uniform on uh, and then, you know, you see them you know, maybe kicking a soccer ball or something and, and you kind of at least see small little pictures of what it looks like in, 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 yeah. their, in their, um you know, township and, and, um, yeah, there's something special about that. And, and oh, and the kids adore it. Like I, uh, when I was in um, the Dominican Republic, um, my role for several months was as a sponsorship coordinator. So I would receive all the letters from the sponsors and I would take them to the kids oh. and give them their letters. And then if they um, could read, I'd just write a translation. If they couldn't read, I'd read them to them in Spanish. And then you know, they would have them on their, they had lockers and they would put them all on their lockers. This was in an orphanage. And, and then, you know, I would help them write letters back. So I'd say, what do you want to say? And, you know, it was an eight-year-old. Oh, I want to say hi. <laughs> like, I don't know. They were just kids, you know. They didn't know what yeah, to say. Children. Or they'd say, oh, we had, you know, macaroni for lunch or something. And, that, you know, and I'd translate it back. And it was this beautiful thing to be on the other side because I'd been a sponsor for many years. And you think, ah, they don't want to hear from me. Like, why would they want to hear from me? But these children were just thrilled and they were so proud that they had this friend in another country and they'd have their photos of their family up and they'd be like, oh, this is my friend Jane, you know, and she writes me letters and yeah, it's just such a beautiful thing. And so to be able to see that, how the kids, you know, a friend of mine, you know, we used to work at Child Fund together and she sponsored a child in a community. And because she worked at the organization, she ended up in that community for work at some stage so she was like oh like it'd be wonderful to visit her child and she said she walked into this this child lived in a 
in a literal mud hut, you know, didn't have many position, possessions, but she walked in and there was only one thing on the wall and it was a birthday card that she'd sent like three years earlier. And she was so moved, like she worked for the charity, but she didn't even, she didn't really understand like what a big thing it was that she was doing as that sponsor. And she, she was so moved by it. Like, sorry, that was 10 years ago. And I still feel emotional thinking about it because that moment of realization, what you mean to somebody and to their life, hmm. you know, in such a small token gesture of sending a card. So, <laughs> And that's the hard thing, I suppose, that, that um, the charities try and, and 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 convey how touching and important and heartfelt all of these things are you know, it's not just the money it's the fact that someone cares the fact that someone across the other side of the world um takes the effort to to do something you know whether it's a card yeah. or a, yeah. a, a small little you know uh, nominal thing that is, you know, felt, you know, in a, in a special way, as we do with our loved ones here. But we all know what that feels like. It doesn't matter what the cost is. It's, you know, most of the time, most of us would like a, a heartfelt, you know, message in a card than something that, you know, is is, is shiny. Um, but it, it's special stuff. Yeah. I, and of course, I've been you, talking about, um, just to Clarify, I've been talking mostly from the context of international development work because yeah. that's where I worked and what I did but and where I fundraised. But, of course, there's many incredible causes closer to home. There's environmental causes, animal causes. It's not all about helping humans. And so there's many ways you can connect with um, incredible work. Anyway, mm-hmm. I was just going to ask you about um, trying to learn what, what it is that makes people give um, and also if, if we can extend on that and, and talk also about what is it that makes people maintain giving, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming there's there, there there's maybe a difference between what's the hook, what, what what's mm-hmm. the reason that someone is compelled mm-hmm. to initially give, mm-hmm. uh, and and what is it that you know either stops that from happening or reoccurring or or keeps someone from continuing to engage. Mm. Well, I'm curious about what your suspicions are. So whether you yourself give or not, what do you think might be some of the reasons that people give? <laughs> Look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the, the reason why people give, uh, at least probably the most largest reason, why it might be an emotional reason to start off with that, mm-hmm. that we're captured by, mm-hmm. you know, the story that we see on the television or the person that comes up to us on the street and, and says something or a photo that we observe and more often than not, it's the, you know, highlighting the need, you know, the pain mm-hmm. and the suffering and we're looking to alleviate that um, mm-hmm. as a uh, as, as maybe a way to avoid our own pain or um, to to you know, do it for other valued, you know, reasons. But I, I think for a lot of us, it's an emotional pain that we feel and we mm. we don't like seeing another human being suffering. Mm. Um, and if mm. we feel we've got a, a capacity to do so, um, then then we, you know, are likely to do it. I, I also think that friction is a big part of this as well, where mm. if it's hard to do so if it takes mm. multiple steps if there is complexity in trying to to give it slows us down from giving versus mm. if it was easily achieved and frictionless um you know where where it's um organized and put together quickly i think a lot of people are 
much more likely to 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 give. Um, I mean, I I did this recently where we, we uh, my family went to a uh, rainforest um, and there was a little you know donor um, an FPOS machine actually sitting there, mm-hmm. which you know said donate five dollars or whatever it was. I can't remember, and it was easy because I could just pull my phone out and tap the side button twice and just put on it um and i was like wow that is much easier um you know and it was already prescribed how much it was yeah. you know there's no, no choices there's no nothing you you do it or you don't um and so it, it was an easy thing to do um you know mm. it felt it felt really um uh, uh, good at multiple levels um mm. but it also didn't create a hassle in my life mm-hmm. um so i think yeah, pain would be number one, uh, but I think mm-hmm. human beings still, you know, we have our own pain about, you know, how long is this transaction going to take or how difficult is it or, you know, so on. So I think we're, we're selfish. Yeah, we care for a point. Time. <laughs> I yeah. care, but don't make it too hard. Am, yeah. I, any, am, am I close? Am I? Am oh, I, I think, a, yeah, I think you've touched on some really important um, factors. So, yes, I, you talked about, empathy in a way which is the ability to understand the feelings and thoughts of another person so you say you see what their life is like you empathize but also importantly you talked about compassion which is where you go a step beyond that you see somebody else's suffering and you're impelled to act to make their life better um absolutely i think friction is an interesting one yeah make it easy um basically you know when it comes to giving there are a complex range of motivations um many different reasons that people give and people tend to talk about like a debate about you know in in academic work we talk about uh, altruism versus egoism or self versus other orientations and so a lot of people seem to be debating all the time oh are people really you know altruistic do they really care about other people or are they just giving for selfish motives Um, And I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a complex constellation. Now, some people might be more self-oriented in their giving. Some people might be more other-oriented. But there's many factors that come into play. They start with practical things. You talked about friction. I think that's really good. It starts with practical things like, do I know that there is a need? (laughs) If I don't know that there's a need, I'm highly unlikely to give. Am I asked to give? (laughs) This is something we don't think about. But Try to remember the last time you made a donation. Chances are there was a prompt. Somebody asked you. You know, there's very few people the, that the marketing world calls it a, a call to action. A call right? to action, exactly. We call it solicitation in fundraising. But you know, very few people wake up on a Saturday morning and spontaneously go, you know, I might give away a hundred dollars today. Let me just think where I'm going to give it. It's just not how we work. Mostly because we're just busy thinking about other stuff. And so even though we get annoyed um, by being asked to give, you know, you have to remember that if somebody works as a fundraiser for charity, their whole mission is to raise support for people or communities or entities that need it. And so their whole goal is to ask you. You don't have to say yes, but you should be glad that they're asking because if they don't ask, they know how it will be provided. So there's pragmatic factors like that. There are, as you suggested, emotional it's, factors. My apologies for jumping in, but no. 
geez, that's simple and 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 obvious. Once it's said, you know, totally. we yeah. need to just ask. It, it, it's almost no, no. It's no different to anything else. Yeah. You know, when someone says, "Oh, I can't find a date," or "I can't," it's like, it's like, have you asked anyone? No, no, I haven't. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. if you ask 50 people, someone's going to say yes, you know, and obviously yeah. I'm bit, being a bit sort of uh, broad there, but you, you're, you're so right. You know, we, we've just got to ask because there's, there's there's a numbers game and there's people who want to, but they're just not being asked. Yeah, and, and we want to, and many of us, I mean, around 80% of Australians give to charity in any given year. So most of us do give, but we don't constantly give. We don't give to every cause. We don't give every time we're asked. And so, you know, I want people to feel fine to say no, but also to joyfully say yes when the time and the cause is right. And, you know, to accept that fundraisers, that's their job. They're going to ask you. Um, so we have pragmatic factors. We have um, emotional factors, as you suggested, things like empathy and compassion, things like um, guilt, um, fear, anger, joy, pride, nostalgia, Um all kinds of things about how we feel. There's also something we call warm glow. The economists came up with this because in economics, everything's a, an equation, a sort of cost-benefit equation, and it's all about personal utility. So economists find it very hard to understand why anybody would feasibly give away their money to benefit somebody else at their own personal cost. Like it just doesn't make sense to an economics mind. Bloody economics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's fine, but just people like that, that's how they think, you know, and there's a lot of people that think this way. So they literally invented a, a concept which they call warm glow. So they can put into an equation and then they can balance it. And warm glow is that good feeling you get when you make a donation. You know, if you do something kind for somebody else and afterwards you feel a little bit like that was nice. So economists go, well, that's the emotional kickback you get. That's your reward. Therefore, you're getting something for it. Therefore, it's not altruistic. And Is now that the egoism uh, <laughs> yeah. part? Yeah, okay. They call it impure altruism. So you can still care about others, but you're, it's not purely about others because you're trying to get this good feeling. So that's true. That's another factor. And then, and then on top of those, we have um, more egoistic factors. So some people give, for example, to receive what we would say reputational benefits to have other people think well of them. So we know that generally we look positively upon people that do kind things for others. So strategically, if you do give a lot of money away, people are going to think you're a good person. Um, people can also give for reward, uh, sort of material rewards. So whether that's a tax rebate or some kind of gift in exchange for their donation. Um, and then there's rational concerns such as, Will my donation have an impact? Will it actually make a difference in the world? Um, how is my money going to be used? There's lots of factors that underlie. And then my own work has focused a lot on things so like- I can just I, jump in, jump in yeah. quickly before I finish. I, for me, that was actually quite, quite um, uh, beautiful, that World Vision- provided a pie chart and they split it all up to to let me know in a very transparent way how the money was being spent and i actually remember in my mind uh i just thought the money just goes to the community you know mm. and uh, i wasn't insulted by by the mm. pie chart I, it was actually an educational um, experience for me going oh yeah you know you actually need all of these other things and mm. that you know Absolutely. i think it was something like 30 percent went to to you know the community or whatever, whatever, whatever it was. But you look at all the other components. You're like, yeah, 
how else are you going to achieve this? You know, it, it needs exactly. to be, and hence why it's on scale. Um, and I actually felt really positive about that, that, that yeah. um, you know, I didn't find out in a, you know, from a different place. Maybe I would have been yeah. insulted at that point. It was like, yeah. no, no, they're educating me. They're not hiding this. They, no. they, they, this is a real transparent way to, to um, you know, uh, uh, deal with their donors and I was like this is this is amazing this is how all charities should be and obviously you know I was a young kid um, uh, but that's part of that process of educating people that yeah. uh, this is what it takes to run a charity. Yeah that's a really important point and you'll find that almost all charities or nonprofits will provide a breakdown of how their um, donations are distributed. There's also um some criticism of that within the sector because the, the problem is is that the generally people think about how money is used within a charity in this sort of like either or hydraulic way like that like it either goes to the field or it goes to overheads and if it's going to overheads that's like problematic and so you know most major nonprofits probably have a split of around 70 percent of the donations they receive go to communities and about 30% go to running the organization. That's pretty typical. Um, Maybe very, I got it the wrong way around, yeah. but yeah. No, no, you you did, you, because World Vision for sure has a 70-30 model, 70% to the field. But the problem is, is that when people talk about overhead, they talk about it as if it's like fat in the system. And I know you weren't doing this, you're actually understanding, but people often do talk about it as if it's like wasteful. But you know, if you want to do important, impactful work that genuinely changes circumstances, then you need, for example, accountants. You need, for example, program officers that oversee how that work is being done. You need monitoring and evaluation specialists that are testing to see if the impact that it was intended is actually happening in the community. You need fundraisers that are getting out there raising money for the projects. You know, you need managers that can oversee all of this work. And that's all overhead. Yeah, look, for 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 um, you know, for any listeners, and and I know that all businesses would would appreciate this and understand this, if they were running on a 30% oh, um, you know, they they would be, you know, the apples of the world, um, you know, or the, the Googles of the world. Well. Um, they'd be doing exceptionally, exceptionally well, 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 well above their their um their peers. You know, it's it's a very, very hard thing to to be able to pour 30% you know into uh into overheads only and then you know the rest. You know, versus you know, even if you get 30% probably it's 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 remarkable. How they can, how well they can do on a smelly rag, not not because they have to, but because they choose to. They they are mm. cutting, you know, as much fat off as possible to to give back into communities. So but imagine what they could achieve if we enabled them to invest in oh. growth. <laughs> anyway, that's a whole other discussion. But um, you know, what I found is that people often think about it in this black and white way about overheads. But when you talk about it like this, they do see very quickly. They're like, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> like. Why am I so obsessed with overheads? So I hope if anyone's listening, they will rethink their obsession with how much goes to the field and know that investing in organizations that invest in growth and fundraising and good monitoring and evaluation is also a really good way to do it. And it's really hard for organizations that don't invest in that to scale. So you might think, oh, my donation is is getting to the field, but then they might only help a thousand people, whereas that, that organization can help 10 million people. And so 
if you think about that, if you really care about impact, you actually shouldn't worry too much about the overhead ratio. Anyway, so and, these and are what's actually yeah. fascinating is whenever we look at like large companies, all their money goes into overheads to start with. To be able to go, you know, from from something small to actually affecting, you know, millions of people, the investments are massive. This is how the whole stock market works. Yeah. People pour in billions of dollars to try and get a company to just, you know, sell one thing. Um, so it can get a, you know traction. So we actually need overheads to be large, exactly. not just because there's people on the ground, but in actual fact, building infrastructure, building systems, building scale, getting out to more communities, uh, you know, setting up software and other things so that things are frictionless and they cost less over time and et cetera, et cetera. We want, uh, you know, for impact reasons, exactly. lots of overheads because you can also employ really smart people to um, you know, find the most economically viable ways to to continue to give in a you know more more broad sense. Absolutely, you get it. I love it. Um, but I, I jumped in. I saw I interrupted you. Yeah. I'm not sure what I was. Um, I, I think was we saying. were just talking about the motives, and so I was um, summarizing the different kinds that we talked about. Things like um, practical concerns, emotional concerns, uh, egoistic concerns. Um, rational information and I think the last thing was just that I've been doing quite a lot of work myself on the role of identity um so how the groups we belong to the meaningful groups that we belong to and that we perceive as being important to our sense of self can influence the way we whether we give or not and also where we distribute our donations and related to that the role of social norms so how much we perceive other people that are like us do give to charity which kinds of causes they support um, all of that can really um, motivate or demotivate our giving as well and what are some of the factors for people maintaining uh, the the, the you know, giving that they provide you know for, for me my uh, giving at least with world vision stopped when they instigated stopping so the child had left the oh, yes. particular um, region um, uh, and maybe, I don't know, six or 12 months later, the other child had also left the region. And, and um, you know, I, I interestingly, I took, you know, I was, I was younger, I took it in, in, in interesting ways. Um, I, I think I felt a bit, a bit sad um, and even a little bit hurt, uh, strangely enough, that, that I couldn't see any more of... Mm-hmm. of um you know this this child's journey and you know probably the white person sort of problem you know as well i had these ambitions in my mind that one day maybe i'd go across and, and meet this child as you know feeling like i had mm-hmm. done this very specific thing for this very specific mm-hmm. child you know it had all great hooks you know and, and for, for good reason and in many ways it's still important but um you know it was it was fascinating how i responded um mm-hmm. Hence why I'm, you know, asking the question, and and you know, obviously mm. it would be very different as a as an older person to sponsor a child versus as a younger person mm. sponsoring a child, um, as we, you know, change as human beings ourselves and our own identities, and you know. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. But you know, I did used to work at several child sponsorship organisations, so I do know a bit about the child sponsorship process. It's in terms of like a fundraising product or the way you can fundraise. It's extremely. Um, sticky way to get people to continue to give right because they have a genuine relationship with another human being yeah and their giving is symbolically for that person so usually at least 
how it used to work is direct transfers to those children. Um, these days, that was problematic because some people in the community were thriving while other people were struggling and it just depended if there were sponsors. And so for quite a long time, all these organisations, what they do is they pull the resources. So you sponsor a particular child within the community, but the money goes from all the children that are sponsored to support the whole community and the community will usually choose their priorities. Like they'll know how much money is coming in each year and they'll have a as a community, they'll rank their priorities and they'll invest, you know, we'll buy it, put in a new borehole or we'll upgrade the school or whatever it is. Um, but you still have that personal connection. So even though your money is going to the community, your relationship is with the child. And so, of course, it's extremely hard to cancel because you're like, well, that's a human being on the end and I know them and I care. So in this way, it's a really good way to get people to maintain that. And it's a meaningful connection, but it's a really cha- challenging time when the child graduates out of the program, for example, maybe turns 18 and moves to the city or whatever it is. Um, because often you've built a sense of connection with the child rather than the organization. Um, and you've watched them grow up. Like, yeah. you know, you see their facial features change and then, you know, grows up into a little boy that's you know now a teen and you're kind of going through this. It's like, Oh my yeah. God, I've, I've actually followed them through you know their development you know at least uh, a part of it you know and it's beautiful it's such a beautiful thing because that humanness you know it's you know I felt I had a relationship with the child not with Wildwood not with World Vision you know it was like but that's the challenge for the organization right because then when the child leaves (laughs) that's what happened with me right I I, I left World Vision after that (laughs) exactly so most most organizations don't have that kind of Um, connection with an individual beneficiary so I suspect the thing that keeps people going and I'll be honest there's not a lot of research on this there's really not a lot of research on sustained giving like really not much so this is an opportunity I think for us to um, learn more about the psychology that sustains people in giving but I would suspect it's the same sort of psychological factors um, that get us to sustain a lot of behaviours. Um, habit is a really big one. So, you know, if you're like me, the way I give, I tend to sign up for, you know, regular payments like direct debit or monthly credit card payment. And that's because I've chosen where my values lie and the organisations that I believe in and I want to support. But I, like you talked about friction, I don't want to have to go and make a donation whenever they ask me. I just want to know I've committed this much every month and that's going through. So it's that like be- a subscription model where, where exactly. you don't have to think it, it's happening. Yeah. You get that nice feeling, you know, you're contributing, you can yeah. still you know, feel the compassion and the the, the, the altruism. And, yeah, and you see um, how your work is transforming. They keep me posted. So they don't ask me much for additional donations because, the, you know, I probably give to five or six organizations in this way where I give like a monthly amount and they all keep me posted about like how that's being used in a maybe biannual newsletter or something. And I like to read that and say, okay, because I want to reevaluate as well. And like maybe my values change or maybe I think there's a new priority that I want to invest in over time. And so I might change every so often. But I think that habit or like that set and forget is a good way to give um, and a what reason that people do continue to give and because we do we do want to contribute or I think most people do want to contribute and but we're busy and our lives are a bit overwhelming and so I do encourage if you're one of those people that's 
you know, you do want to contribute, but you feel a bit overwhelmed by the whole process and you feel, you know, harassed, then maybe just make some time on a Sunday morning to sit down and think, you know, what are your values? What are you, what are the things that you want to see happen in the world? Whatever it is, like maybe you're like really upset at the idea that animals get treated poorly and you want to just make sure that somebody's looking after them or maybe you know you've experienced cancer in your family and you've seen what that does and you think I want to invest in research for a cure whatever it is sit down make your little list and just sign up just go and proactively sign up to the charities that you care about and give the amount that feels sustainable for you and I think that is a really good way to sustain giving from the donor side um you know some people I think give out of Uh, sustain their giving out of like a guilt you know they think oh but I do have so much and like I should give like yeah I just I just dropped 200 dollars on dinner you know with my friends and I can't and then there's this child that's so hungry you know um that kind of um challenge or whatever it is I bought some new shoes or you know like I've just rented a nice car or whatever and then you think oh yeah does sit a little bit uncomfortably when you think about the hardship and so that could sustain people um but I yeah there's not a lot of research on it to be honest Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd be curious I think it's just that people choose the things they value they get reinforcement they see from the charity that it's making a difference and it's easy to keep doing it it's interesting why, why the reason why I don't I don't judge uh, feelings because there's a functional reason and and you know there's there's often value in the ones that we would sometimes negatively judge like guilt you know mm. it's good reason for guilt you know and it, it's guilt is very functional in many in many ways yes it can be used and abused by mm. you know, for example family members on, on children um uh, but it's also a way in which we um, can feel motivated to do something that you know mm. might not necessarily be uh, uh, positively connected for us, mm. but it's still you know, a positive thing to do. And so we can sometimes feel guilted to, to do something. So, you know, yeah. I, I imagine everyone who's in the charity space, uh, they don't mind if people are giving through guilt. Um, the fact that they're giving and, and children yeah. are being supported or communities or, you know, animals or rainforests that aren't being, you know, ripped down or, you know, yeah. farmers being able to move from you know, chopping trees down to harvesting or something. I mean, other other crops or whatever it might be that's more more environmentally yeah, I, friendly. I think some people, yeah, some people do feel guilt. I it's not something that I feel very strongly, um, just because I'm a pragmatist, and so I just think sure. I've evaluated my life, I've evaluated my values, I've made choices, and I feel confident that, like, I feel good about how how mm. I'm acting. But, you know, some people, I've got friends that say they do feel guilty and and guilt is something that comes within you, right? So often they say, oh, the charities make me feel guilty. Well, they're not making you do anything. They're giving you information and that information is causing you to feel guilty. And if that's happening, then that's something you need to evaluate inside yourself about why you feel that way and whether that's valid and whether you could do something differently, right? I think, as you suggest, it's a it's a signal when we feel guilt, it's a signal that we need to evaluate our behavior and whether it aligns with how, who we want to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. no, um, said. Yeah. Is so, there, Is there any data with, with regards to how many of us are giving on a regular basis versus uh, you know, a one-off? I know, for example, when we had the bushfires in Australia recently, you know, there's a, you know, an, an appeal that goes on and, um, uh, 
forgotten the, the, the lady's name that um, mm-hmm. had a bit of a following. The comedian, yeah. Uh, the comedian. Um, she's funny. Um, dressing up and, you know, doing all the the, 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 the comparisons between, you know, like what you see online and then what reality looks like. Uh, something Barber. Uh, what, what's um. Celeste, Celeste Barber, I think it was that 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 lady, um, uh, and you know she she was able to 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 you know get a get a whole lot of single donor you know um, contributions. It almost kind of became this thing where you know have you gone out and mm-hmm. and you know pledged given money you know to, to this because we have and you know obviously that that's wonderful to see lots and lots of money that that went to you know a, a good cause obviously there was a bit of controversy around that um over time which we may or may not get into today but um how many of us are doing a single one off you know hey this is a bushfire let's give for this appeal mm-hmm. versus you know long term sustained is there any data that you there uh, is data have? i don't know it specifically um i know that with disasters and crises you get almost exclusively by their nature single gift donors so people just making cash gifts um and then it's famous within the nonprofit sector that people that give to organizations through crises don't become regular donors like they tend not to translate into regular donors and i think that's because there's quite different psychological factors at play that get you to give in a crisis situation versus giving in a more development or um, chronic situation. Um, But just from my own work within the sector and from the data have seen, it varies a lot by charity. So different kinds of nonprofits, some of them do and some of them don't have regular giving programs. Some of them emphasize their regular gifts. So something like World Vision or Child Fund that rely on a lot on child sponsors, they might be like 80% regular givers. And then you've got other organizations that like, I'm not sure, for example, if Red Cross has a regular giving program. And so they probably do, but they might have a smaller percentage because that's not like the drive. They might get a lot of crisis donors. And so you get a lot of cash donors in those databases. But um, certainly from a charity's perspective, And if you are concerned about efficiency in fundraising, you should think about becoming a regular giver because it's quite hard and quite costly to get a person to give for the first time. And if you can get that same investment gets you a $30 one-off donation versus gets you somebody that's willing to give you $30 a month for the foreseeable future, you can see that the return on investment is quite different. And what organizations really want to do is they want to get you to commit to giving over time for several reasons. One is because of that return on investment is better. So it's a better way for them to use their fundraising money. But also because these organizations, many of them rely on donations. And so just like any business, imagine that you're trying to forecast like what work you can do next year. If you are relying exclusively on cash donations, it's very hard for you to know for sure how much money you'll have. Whereas if you get regular recurring donations, you can guess that you might lose 5% through churn, but you'll get this many new. You probably have about this much money next year and you can plan Mm. effectively. Um, And the other reason is actually for the donor experience is that if you just give, you know, $10 here and $20 there to different organizations, but you have no relationship then all you'll see is a world where people are 
asking you always to give and expressing need and making you feel guilty and all of that. But if you enter into an ongoing relationship with an organization, what you'll see is transformation. You'll see positive stories. You'll get to see the incredible complexity of the work that they're doing to make a change in the world and how you're a part of that. And that journey will be so much more rewarding for you. And so there's many reasons that I think um, regular giving or sort of a sustained commitment of giving is a really good way to do it. I think it's such a good point that the regular giving definitely provides an organisation with the capacity to plan and and we know that that's where your efficiencies will come from going out and saying oh look you know we we raised seven million dollars in this so what do we then do it's it's very hard to to you know play that out over the course of a 12-month period or even 18-month period you know similarly like our government they they have taxes and so they know we're going to get x amount each year uh, and, you know, it's very, very predictable um, what that's going to, to look like. And hence, you know, why we've got amazing, you know, roads and hospitals and, you know, schools and education and so on and so forth. Uh, and, you know, then there's just the question of, you know, how well can we do it and um, what's mm-hmm. the most uh, greatest needs. But uh, I, I can definitely see, you know, the the reoccurring is, is, is you know, subscription type model is, is much more, uh, I would say, rewarding for both. You know the organisation gets benefit, and so do so do the the um, uh, the the donors um, who are you know providing those resources, and the people who are receiving them. You know it, it becomes a better social outcome across the board. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a win win win. Mm. Absolutely. How do how do we as 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 you know? As a public or, or as even individuals go with trust of of nonprofits, you mentioned that earlier, and, and we both sort of touched on it, and, and sort of the Celeste Barber thing recently, mm. um, not too recent anymore, um, uh, and you know, and I actually don't even know what the, the issue there was, other than there was a question mark about how those monies were going to be given to which, you know, RFS units um, and, and mm-hmm. people were thinking they were giving it to a specific RFS and and it was being divvied up in different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I don't care. I just think, you know, it's just good that it's going to, you know, the RFS or anywhere um, that, that has a strong need. But um, how do we go with trust? You know, it seems like this is a problem. Is that because you know, obviously money is, a, is, is an important commodity and, and everyone's, you know, cognizant of that. And so if we are giving it mm. away, we want to make sure that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's used well. Yeah, I mean, psychologically, it's really different from the way we engage with other companies, right? If I want an iPhone and I walk into the Apple store and I give them my whatever it is, $1,000 or some ridiculous price tag, they give me a phone and I work out, walk out with a phone. So I don't need to trust them about with my money or anything like that. Like, are they really going to buy make an iPhone? Like, yeah, I've got the iPhone in my hand. And so with giving, it's so different, isn't it? You giving for the promise of work you'll never observe. And that's happening often. I mean, even when it's happening locally, you're probably never going to see it unless like I say you become a regular giver and that's why they try to give you that information so you can observe it over time 
but you're probably never going to be in that community. You're never going to see that exact thing. And so you have to trust. <laughs> you have to believe that broadly what you are giving for is what how it's going to be used. And, you know, trust then becomes something critical for nonprofits. Um, and there is data, my own data has clearly shown that there is a relationship between how much we trust either other people in general, charities in general, or the specific organization, especially the specific organization, and how much we donate. So absolutely for organizations working in the nonprofit sector, trust is a critical component for their sustainability over time. Now, there's been a narrative for some time in the media and also within the nonprofit sector. If you go to, for example, conferences and stuff where people congregate and talk about these issues, there's been a narrative that there's a crisis of trust in charities, that the public are losing trust in charities. Um, and this, this you see headlines about it all the time, all around the world. And so this is concerning. If this is true, we're worried, right? And so my colleagues and I actually went to try and understand where this narrative is coming from. And we found some data that allowed us to test this. So we were able to look at how much people trust NGOs in something like 40 to 45 different countries. And we were able to look at it over a period of almost 10 years. And actually, when we looked at the data about this, the evidence suggests that there isn't a crisis of trust. So this is wonderful. Um, if anything, trust is increasing slightly over time. So this is a good news story for nonprofits. But why is it that we feel we're so concerned and we have this feeling about maybe a growing mistrust? Um, my suspicion is that, you know, you see headlines about inappropriate behavior in organizations, uh, in nonprofit organizations, and this worries us. And the, there's reasons you see these headlines, partly because, you know, news stories, they love the shock, right? And so when you have a nonprofit, then your mental model is good things. So when something bad happens involving a nonprofit, and I say involving a nonprofit because almost every scandal that's ever emerged have been one or two or three individuals that have done bad thing, but that work at a nonprofit. So it's very rare that it's the nonprofit itself that is doing something scandalous. And then the media love this because it's a shocking story. And then we remember it because it surprises us. And so we get a sense that there's really a lot of inappropriate behavior or, or worrying um, corruption or misconduct. But actually, you know, even in Australia, we have around 60,000 registered charities and nonprofits. So now there certainly haven't been 60,000 scandals. You know, there might have been one or two inappropriate things that have occurred within organizations, nonprofits that have come to light. And so proportionately, there's not really an issue, <laughs> but psychologically, it's a worry, right? And so for the sector is something that I think they have to take very seriously because trust is really important. But even the language that media, I mean, I could talk about media forever. It's one of my Bears, but uh, you know the language that media put to it is is things like it's a scandal. You know, it's the the biggest thing since blah blah. blah. It's, it's just all nonsense catchwords that obviously grab eyeballs because they're you know their their business is about catching eyeballs. Um, and writing scandal is very interesting. You know, it does does grab eyeballs. Um, uh, but 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 it is interesting that, that you know 
the amount that someone is willing to give is based on trust and it's the media that erodes the trust to get a headline and and that doesn't suggest that there isn't times where you know funds might be used inappropriately or or whatever it might be um that's no different to you know funds in my household are used inappropriately because it's very hard to run a 100% efficient household, you know, constantly all the time. There, there has to be um, times where errors are made or, you know, um, you plan on something, but it was just wasn't a good decision. Um, you know, there was an unintended consequence that you couldn't see inside. And um, there can be bad, bad actors, right? There can be people that yeah. are um, deliberately defrauding. This happens. Absolutely. And that happens in any kind of organization, but people might be particularly drawn to working in nonprofits if they have nefarious intentions because they might feel that there's a culture of trust there, that that mostly I'm working with good people, they're not going to be watching me too carefully. These things might happen. Sure, sure. Um, but we have data, you know, we've we've studied this, my colleagues and I, in particular Matthew Hornsey and Nicole Gillespie and I have studied a lot of stuff about trust and scandals involving nonprofits. And, you know, our data show that the exact same behavior committed within a nonprofit has much harsher repercussions than the exact same behavior occurring within a commercial organization. And that's because people are just surprised. They just think of the nonprofits as the good guys and something bad happens there. They lose more trust in them. They're less likely to engage with them afterwards than if that that same behavior occurred in a identical organization that didn't have nonprofit status. And so, you know, we are operating in a world where nonprofits are probably held to higher penalties. Um, And, you know, we just need to be aware of that as a, as a sector. And, you know, maybe as, as people in the world, then we just need to remember that humans are humans. Um, You know, things are going to potentially happen and, you know, we need to be a bit aware of that. And in actual fact, it, it, it's fantastic when something is is genuinely uncovered, you know, not talking about these ridiculous stories that blow mm. little things up, but when mm. something's genuinely uncovered, oh, yeah. um, the charities are happy, as, as is any organisation, is happy to find out about it. Yes, there's reputational damage, but then they just go in and fix it and they say, mm-hmm. You know, this is not the way to conduct ourselves, you know, and, and you know. Well, that's what they should do, right? They should yeah. apologise and rectify um, yeah. and, and let's hope. And I think organisations, non-profit organisations need to be prepared for it because, yeah, you can't help it. Somebody might try to defraud you. Somebody might be operating in bad faith in the communities you work in and individuals might be doing that sort of thing. You know, the Oxfam scandal that erupted a few years ago involving involved three senior officers in in Haiti that were doing inappropriate, you know, bad things uh, in their personal time. But that cost Oxfam in the UK three million regular donors. So so for me, that's a disproportionate response to what was legitimately bad behaviour and that that organisation operating in Haiti, their outreach in Haiti should have been across these bad actors and done more to protect the communities absolutely but think about what the how many people around the world suffered as a consequence because oxfam is doing brilliant work (laughs) and so what a shame three million regular donors cancelled you know Um, but you you began asking about this in the context of disasters and it's really common after a disaster for there to be a quote-unquote scandal about how 
the funds are distributed. And I just thought it might be worth mentioning that it is a really unique context because what happens is um, usually people give in these contexts because of urgency, they're seeing images in the media that are shocking to them, they might have a personal connection, they might themselves feel uncomfortable, it's called personal distress where they see these shocking images and they feel uncomfortable and they think, what can I do to get rid of this feeling? They donate. So what happens is often you get this massive influx of donations for a specific issue that at that point, the organization doesn't even know what the response is going to be because it's just happening. Um, And they don't know the scale of the need and how much it's going to be. And often you get a disproportionate response when, for example, these issues happen in, in Western communities <laughs> so which are also the communities that get a lot of government government support and so it can be really hard when these organizations suddenly get these massive influxes and it's like it's happening so quickly that they it's not like they can just be like you know what we've reached our limit we don't need any more um because they, there is extreme need and it might just not only be for that particular issue and so people that are donating are donating in good faith saying oh look I saw on the news about this local community and this family that was affected and they said I could donate. And so they think, oh, yeah, it's going to help that family. Well, that family only needs so much. And if we, you know, <laughs> if we raise $15 million or something, then of course it's not all going to go to that family. And so then the organizations are often thinking, how can we use this money in a way that's still aligned with the intentions of the donors? And that can take time. And so often these, these charities come under fire because they don't distribute the money quickly enough. But it's because they're trying to go, well, let's be effective with this donation. And so if they suddenly get $15 million and they don't have a program operating in a crisis space, so they have to start going, well, now what are the needs of the community? How can we respond? How can we use this money? And because donors get really upset if you use money for, like they could go, oh, we have this crisis over here that nobody donated to. If they were being bad actors, they could, quote unquote, bad actors, they could distribute the money there which would actually be a wonderful thing to do right and go yeah more people that need it get it but we would as donors feel uncomfortable about that so they go we have to make sure it's ring fence to this crisis and then the reality is you know it's just a very complex situation to respond to I've done work I um, in 2010 there was a massive earthquake in Haiti one of the most devastating earthquakes on record and I was part of the disaster response there and so I saw how these things have to boot up from nothing and how hard it is you're operating in places that have no electricity suddenly and people are overflowing the hospitals and people can't get in and out of the country and half of the team that work there have died and you know like all sorts of things are happening that make these really really challenging complex situations and so I kind of I mean I understand why people don't understand all of that But that's why you often see after crises these kind of outrage about the money not being spent quickly enough or not being used exactly as people thought it was going to be used. It's because of these kinds of issues. So it's almost uh, in a scenario that because you know because it's a crisis, it means it's chaotic, and therefore, no matter which way the cards sort of fall there's going to be criticism and and I I, I don't know if the general public actually are criticizing you know or reflecting on this conversation I I think it's media driven and then yeah. they say there's an outrage it's like who's outrage like 
oh, in the media, we're outraged about everything. You know, yeah, the, the internet right. explodes about this. Everyone's outraged about this. Like, no, no, the internet hasn't exploded and no one's outraged about anything. Like we, um, we want to maybe be informed, I'd like to think. Yeah. Um, you know, I get that news is bloody entertainment these days rather than actual uh, proper factual, you know, well, well um, educated and, 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 you know, thought through uh, fact-finding news, it's it's just rubbish. Um, and, and yes, there's probably things that have happened in Oxfam and every organisation. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, find me an organisation that hasn't had, you know, problems over time, especially if it's a large one at scale that that is giving. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it seems like, you know, it's, it's more about what, what the narrative is and, and sadly, um, uh we don't give charities too much of an opportunity to actually discuss what all the problems are and what they're doing. Yeah. We give our money and then we wait for a headline. Um, and in actual <laughs> fact. I um, mean, it makes sense. People read headlines and they just take that. I mean, I have found that almost every conversation I've ever had about this sort of stuff, when I lay it out, people are very, they're like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And they get it really quickly. And just in defense of the media, like I, I I agree that there's like, that you know, that's just how it works, right? Attention, novelty, timeliness. But to their credit, they also can be really um, beneficial in driving the response. So, you know, I've recently yeah, published work, as well. yeah. exactly yeah. about the bushfire crisis in Australia. And, you know, the, the media coverage was instrumental in garnering support and creating a sense of urgency, of knowledge of need, but also of the fact that, it created a sense that Australians cared about this. The best way to respond was to support, and they really helped to drive the donation response. So yeah. they can use their powers for good, I think. Cassandra, I think what you're seeing here is uh, what my bias is against <laughs> the, uh, the the media. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah. uh, they will happily profit on either end uh, to promote <laughs> it or, or, or to go out and discredit it. Um, you know, but a uh, little insight into how I think. Um, but it is, it, it, it's a big, it's a big platform that, that does um, uh, in many way, ways steer the narrative and, you know, hence why we all have to be very mindful about, you know, uh, having good relationships with, with you know, news to, to um, you know, the media organisations so that we have a good news story because at the moment that's the way to drive traffic you know if you're going to Mm. try and establish trust with your donors or the community if you're going to go out and and tell them about the wonderful things that you're doing Mm. uh, if you're going to try and uh, uh, elicit a a, you know positive response Mm. it's all going to be coming through through the media um so yeah Yeah, it's it's so beneficial for charities and non-profits when they're given a platform in the mainstream media because a lot of the interactions that the public have with charities are in transactional ways, right? Where they're being asked to give or they're being thanked for their gift. And so that's fine, but it is really nice to get sort of this, what I would say, third-party endorsement of this chance to just hear the conversation or see, um, you know, when you see a representative of the charity on the news or something discussing important work, it's really nice to just see it from that angle of observer as well. Mm-hmm. In your in your time working in the fundraising uh, part, uh, what was your involvement there, and and um, you know how how much 
how much conversation was there um, in, in terms of, you know, how do we engage the community and what are the sorts of things that we're trying to, you know, educate the community on so mm. that they, you know, do make a, a contribution. Um, you know, is, is that a conversation that happens, you know, at, at, at many levels? I'm, I'm assuming it's different at each level, obviously yeah. salespeople, you know, or, you know, the collectors or those that are trying to elicit a response is different to, you know, marketing executives that are, you know, um, at a higher level. Um, and obviously you need the bean counters to look at what does that spreadsheet look like because mm. we have to tell, you know, everyone about how much we're spending and we can't just go absurd with all of our, with our advertising it has to be incredibly cost effective. Um, what was your involvement in that part? Yeah, I mean, so as you point out, there's many different um points of contact within a fundraising structure and so my job wasn't was wasn't directly talking to donors so I was um, a fundraising manager so I was sort of developing the strategy for the organizations um developing campaigns whether that was um the kind of thing you receive in the mailbox which um might share the story of a community or an individual and talk about the needs in that community and ask for donations or sharing the report backs about the work that's happening as well as managing campaigns through telemarketing and face-to-face when people come up to you in the street or at the mall and talk to you about the charity. So I was operating at that higher level and um, yeah, I mean, it was extremely important for us that when you talk about community, there's two important communities really involved in the process so my own research in this space um and my own uh, you know I guess theorizing about donor psychology really emphasizes that donor the donor the person that's making the donation is just one part of the picture when it comes to um charitable giving the other two parts are what I call the beneficiary, but that's the basically the end recipient of care, whatever the individual or the entity or the group that because of the donation receives some sort of benefit in their life. And also the fundraiser. So whether that's an individual that's having a conversation with a donor about the needs of the beneficiary or the organization itself. And so when I talk about community involvement, I would say we need to look at um, the beneficiary community, and we need to look at the donor community. And so we being in this in this picture, the fundraiser uh, as the organization. So the donor community, yeah, as a fundraiser, you're thinking a lot about how do you make this a journey for somebody? So we're really aware that when we're writing fundraising appeals, um, we have to rely on highlighting the reality of people's lives Um, I say people because I worked always in international development, but of course, many charities will talk about animals or the environment. But the point is, you have to talk about the need. But we're also aware that donor communities might feel that this is always a bad news story if all they receive is the need. And so we talked a lot about how do we incorporate into the contact that we have with our donor communities, lots of report back like how do we show them what's really happening and we would do that by sending newsletters or thank you emails with um, photos or stories from the field about what's happening or we would run events where we could invite donors to come along and to hear about what's going on and celebrate their 
contribution to social change. And then in terms of the other community of interest is the beneficiary or the end user community, which is so integral in many cases, because, you know, historically charity has been a bit paternalistic and problematic um, where it's been like certain privileged groups, basically observing potentially disadvantaged groups and saying, here's what you need. And we know now, we know better, right? We know that's not okay. And so a lot of really great nonprofits now are working with their beneficiary communities or their client communities or their, um, you know, recipients of support or whatever they call them. It really depends on the context to let them drive their own change to go, well, what's really important? Because like, for example, you know, I used to work fundraising for a community in Zambia, a rural community in Zambia. So how on earth could I and people like me know what a rural community in Zambia needs to thrive? It's ludicrous that that we would have ever thought that we could know. And so now- On an individual basis as well. I mean, you you could try and in some sense uh, collect information from the community, but you don't know it on an individual basis. One person might need- Exactly. seeds or you know a very specific piece of equipment or you know even just money to 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 have for transport for you know a child or whatever it might be at any at any level uh, what that family needs um so yeah it's a good it's a really good point you know giving in some sense without limits um rather than saying we know what you need yeah uh, exactly and yeah. and the, and letting those decisions be collective. So, um, you know, one of the organisations I worked in, what they would do is they would local, like our staff from that country would sit with the community and say, look, this is how much money we think is going to be coming in next year. Like, what are your needs? Like, what are the things that are making things hard in your community right now? And then they would use, you know, because often you're dealing with communities that might be quite remote and might not have, a lot of education, for example. So they don't necessarily know straight away what the best solutions are, but they'll be like, here's our needs. Then they would work with their local um, workers to be like, well, here are some potential things that might help address those. And then they, the community themselves would work through a process of prioritization. And they say like, here's our like top five. And we don't know if we'll be able to fund the top four or the top five, but we'll fund as many as we can. And this is the priority order. Um, and that they do that with consultation and they're very careful, for example, to have consultation with local men and then separately with local women and then separately with local children, because in some communities there can be gendered or hierarchical dynamics. And so they're like really, and, and our, this organization was child focused. So it was really important to make sure children were taking part in the decisions that would affect their lives. And so you know, there's a a really thoughtful process of engaging those communities in their own transformation, um, which I think we should all be proud as donor communities of being a part of. It's a beautiful way to to look at it because I think, you know, all these unintended consequences, you know, it becomes very, very complicated, especially when there's large sums and it's different when it's distributed among lots of households. You know, Mm. the, the scenario of, the bushfire appeal and then one organization all of a sudden has you know 35 million dollars that they don't know what to do with because they don't even have a plan yet because you know only three weeks has gone by and you know you're trying to you know even assess the scenario Mm -hmm. it's almost like someone's won lotto and we know that you know when people win lotto 
people come out of the woodworks asking for money. There's all sorts of problems that that arise. You know, relationships get strained. Everyone thinks that you know that money is endless and it can do everything and so on and so forth. It, it, it's you know for lots of winners, it's probably not a win. You know, after mm-hmm. 12, 24 months. Um, but it's different if if every family in a community all of a sudden gets um, you know let let's say three months worth of income. Uh, that uh, all of a sudden, you know, means that things that they either had to scrape by for are now available or, you know, they can invest in something that they wouldn't have done so potentially ever because they could never be three months, you know, uh, in 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 ahead. Um, so there's a lot of things that, that can happen. Yes, there might be some unintended consequences, but uh, it's at a scale where the whole community gets lifted. Mm. And and they decide what it is. You know, one family says, "We've wanted a." I don't know. I, I hate having examples because I know nothing about the, you know the developing world. But uh, let me do it anyway. You know, one one family might go and say, "I need seeds." Another one says, "I need a cow." Another one says, "I need some fencing." Another one needs transport. Another one's you know about uniforms for their children. Another one is just purely healthcare because they're not well. Um, you know, but everyone gets to choose how that's distributed. And I'm I'm assuming. It actually probably goes into many, many things per household. It's not an item. It's not like all of a sudden. No, it tends not. I mean, I, I couldn't speak for, I mean, there's infinite number of charities and nonprofits that have different ways of operating, but it doesn't tend to be things like that. It tends to be more structural. So it might be like, you know what, there's no preschool within like a two-hour walking distance. So it might be building a preschool so that because if you put children, first of all, the benefits of preschool for education, later education is extremely important but for example in rural communities it might be that that enables women to get out in the field because they're not doing the childcare, or and which means that there'll be more food for the family they might um they might identify you know what like our families are spending four hours a day round trip this isn't an exaggeration to collect water for the day Oh, so God. what we need is we need a local bore because the lo- the closest bore is a two-hour walk away. So that means somebody is out of action for four hours just getting water for the day, and that's happening every day. And so what you'll find is the, the investment tends to be in larger infrastructure like that. That will Jeez, that blows everyone. my mind. Yeah. <laughs> that, that blows my mind that's still happening and, and, and because it, it's, it's like, you know, what we – I mean, there's, you know, there's local people here who, you know, buy a property and they're like, oh, I'm going to put a bore in, you know, just for my local, you know, for yeah. my five acres or whatever it is, um, let alone these are communities that need a bore so they don't do four-hour round trips. And yeah, and that wasn't even like that. This particular example I remember raising money for and this, these communi- this community, they were walking four hours round trip every day and that wasn't for clean, safe drinking water. It was this mud pool <laughs> that they were like getting dirty water out of and the water was like brown. It was like, you know what, the rivers in Australia like that brown colour with all the dirt and it was like that. And so it was like, holy like the difference that this can make, the time saving, but the health saving. So you've mm-hmm. got people getting fresh, clean water. But imagine what it's like when you're just getting sick every day and there's nothing you can do about it. That's all you've got to drink and you know you've got to drink it. Um, and so these are the sorts of things. Or if it's, you know, agri- if it's hunger, then it might be agriculture. It might be like putting in an agriculture infrastructure or communal plots of land, or it might be... Um, you know, one one project I worked on, malnutrition was a major problem. And so one of the things the community invested in was a series of 
local training programs that were run by local people. So they did like a train the trainer that taught parents how to find, for example, insects that they could put in the porridge for their children so their children could get some protein because there was no source of protein and they couldn't afford it. And so they could be like grinding up because insects was the, the best source of protein available in that community. And they taught them how to grind that up and put that in the porridge so the children would at least be getting some nutrients. So these are the kinds of things that people are dealing with. And what they try to do is invest, the community will choose their priorities, but they invest in things that are going to benefit the whole community like that. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> it makes makes uh, immense change. And, and interestingly, we then don't even know what the the consequences are. I think I think it was a TED talk or, or I read it somewhere or I heard it from somewhere that um, the example was, I think it was relating to India and maybe it's because it's such a big population and, and you know, how they do their washing. But, uh, you know, if, if, if we could give, you know, each family, um, you know, a washing machine, you know, something that is, you know, I don't know, $500 uh, to, to produce, the amount of time that, that young women uh, and obviously the mums, because that's you know I believe the primary job um, in in India. I hope I hope that's correct. So I'm not um, misrepresenting. But uh, if that time was given back to those women, you know, uh, you know what could they do? And you know, yes, some might go to do education, but they could do anything with that time. You know, all of a sudden, the the three hours or the four hours or whatever it is that's spent. On a daily basis, uh, and you know, obviously in in waters that probably aren't you know, too too hygienic or safe or whatever it might be. My God, you know, it, it's the smallest little thing, but we don't know what it's going to do. Hey, you know, the positivity and, and and the potential is is immense, and hence the need for for giving. And and you know, I mean, I I have a bit of a bias. I think give to bigger charities. I, I think bigger charities do it. Um more efficiently um and they can do it on a bigger scale i might be wrong um uh, but yeah there's the need for all charities because there's so many nuanced small little things that maybe big charities can't put their attention to um but uh, i think we should all be you know giving as much as we can yeah i agree i think i think just do it and then um go on the journey choose something that you value in the world whatever it is something that you think I want to see that happen in the world or I want to see that change. Just choose one and just do it. Sign up, become a regular giver and go on the journey and learn, you know, and maybe you'll enjoy it and maybe you'll want to do another one and then another one. (laughs) Absolutely. Cassandra, how can we find out more about about your work as well because i think it's important mm. to 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 make sure that our giving is is also considered in a in an academic way that's you know we're we're understanding what you know what's a good way to go out and give mm. um and you know where uh you know where can we find out more about about your work about you know how we can choose to what charities we might want to be you know donors for um, you know, if we want to obviously continue this conversation, you know, for ourselves individually, where can we go? Yeah, I mean, I know there's a lot of resources available online um, for people to consider and compare charities um, if you're considering where to donate. Um, but I would also just, you know, not be too strict with yourself about getting all the information when you start. Like if if something seems meaningful to you and important and and it seems like a legitimate charity like give it a go um but you can look up there's a website called acnc.org.au 
AU, which is the Australian Charities and Nonprofits Commission database website. And that's where all charities in Australia register. And so they have a search function. So you can look up, if you're curious to find out about charities you don't know, you can find information about the different charities that operate in your area or in your postcode if you want something really local or in a topic or uh, that interests you or that serve beneficiaries that are important to you. And you can also there find uh, annual reports um, from those organizations so you can get some information about them. If you're a, a real data nerd and you want to like do your due diligence, that's a good opportunity. If you're listening to this and you work in the nonprofit sector and you want to learn more about donor psychology or fundraising, um, please feel free to, you know, check, find me on LinkedIn, uh, Dr. Cassandra Chapman. I work at University of Queensland Business School. Um, feel free to reach out if you would like copies of any of the research that I've done. I'm happy to share it. But also I'm working at the moment on developing a website um, to translate some of my research into manageable bite-sized portions so that um, nonprofit marketers and fundraisers can learn more about donor psychology and enter into practice. The website's going to be called www.donorpsych.org. Um, and it should be available probably around the end of January. So look out for that. Um, and hopefully there'll be some good resources to help with your fundraising. That's, uh, you know, wonderful to hear that you're, you know, open to sharing that information as well and, and, and supporting people in the industry to, to really understand, you know, these complexities. Obviously we've only touched on it today, but so many items to, to to think about everything from you know what motivates us as as, as donors and and you know, how do we go out and do so mm-hmm. you know what is the, the 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 challenges of you know a charity you know because that must be a, a awfully difficult and, and, and hard job to do particularly with trying to balance the needs of the donor and also the beneficiaries you know and you know, also understanding you know how how do beneficiaries uh, you know, receive support, you know, because that's so nuanced and, and complicated. And, and you know, mm. we know that it's not really just about going into a community and giving out money. Um, you know, the, the the engagement with those communities and understanding and consultation and, and, and you know, it's a partnership and a relationship. Uh, you know, we've seen you know, great challenging times, in, you know, even in you know, our own country in Australia um, with, you uh, you know, and Indigenous folk and trying to, you know, uh, tell them how to live their lives, and you know, there's great complexity around that. Um, but all well intentioned, I'm, 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 I'm sure as well across the world, it's mm-hmm. hard to do relationships. So, you know, thank you for for uh, you know your work and and providing these resources because I think we can all you know think about this some more and try and understand it, and if we can keep an open mind, whether you're the donor, whether you're the uh, charity uh, or the beneficiary, um, you know, we, we we can all kind of do it together and and you know raise well, the standard worldwide. Yeah, exactly. We're working together to make change, and you know, I guess I'll just end by saying, you know, I'm somebody that has had more than the average amount of encounters with charities and nonprofits. I've had the benefit of working, um, you know, as a volunteer for many years of working in field work in many organizations and being a fundraiser. Um, and now, you know, I research the psychology of giving and 
you know, so I know all the ins and outs and I know what's good. I know what's bad about the sector. I know what's good about fundraising and what's bad. And I have a very nuanced view. So I'm not, you know, blinded um, naively, but I would say with everything I know, I believe very firmly that non-charities and non-profits by and large are doing brilliant, important work in our society. I believe that I want to be part of the solution and it's important for me to give and I give joyfully. And I really encourage um, with my whole heart that if you, you know, have maybe been on the fence, then get off that fence, get into um, giving and just find a way to connect with um, with the important work that's being done and be part of that solution. It's exciting. Cassandra, thank you so much for, for your, your time today, your work and your contributions uh, up until now and, and into the future. And just want to let you know, I really do appreciate you. Uh, and what you what you give and uh, yeah big thank you for today thanks it's been fun if you enjoyed this podcast please support it by going to itunes and putting a review subscribe share it via social media and tell others about it start a conversation it's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources and just lastly If you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.